Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity. Unity is such a precious and valuable commodity. It's something that ought to be guarded and protected and kept. You had something that was valuable materially, you put it in a safe place. You put it somewhere where it can't be stolen or taken. Especially if that was something very dear to you and it couldn't be replaced. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and we're dealing with a church that was not unified as they ought to have been. Appreciate Scott reading the last part of chapter 4. Paul is saying that he's going to come and see them, but some were acting like he wasn't going to come. And Paul basically says, oh, I'm coming, but how do you want me to come? Don't make me come there and spank you, is basically what he's saying. I'm paraphrasing would you rather me come there and have war? Would you rather it be painful for you? Or would you rather it be a pleasant experience? Well, they needed some correction. And they needed some humility. And some there in Corinth were arrogant. They were puffed up, he says. And they thought they knew too much. And so there's several occasions here where Paul is saying, Do you not know? And he repeats that phrase several times. And that's important to a people who thought they knew too much. He, needed, he kept asking them, do you not know some things? But there were some people who were talking in a way that was arrogant. But he says, I want to see the action. Let's, let's see when I get there, are they still going to have that? Or is this just talk? Because the kingdom of God is not just in words. It's not just in talk, but it's in what we do. So he begins in chapter 5 with a very difficult command and a command that a lot of churches don't apply even today. But it's there for our good. Surgery is not pleasant, but sometimes it's necessary. You don't like to amputate, but if there's cancer in a body, it might be to save the body. So in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. I mean, think about this. This man is with his father's wife. You know, sometimes there are those who call themselves Christians and they act worse than people of the world. In the passage Paul read, you have an example of a Samaritan, an outsider who had more compassion and more love upon a man that was in a ditch and was desperate while the Levite and the priest walked over and passed him by. The outsider had more concern and had more love for his neighbor than those who professed to follow God and knew the, knew the Lord's will. Sometimes it's that way, unfortunately, that Christians don't always act like Christ. 
and that's not good. First Timothy 5.8 says that a man should provide for his own because if any does not, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Sometimes there are believers who act worse than unbelievers. You, you know what he meant there is because infidels, believer, unbelievers, take care of their own. And whenever a Christian does not take care of his own, he's acting worse than people of the world. In Matthew 8, we see an example of a centurion who had more faith than Jesus had witnessed in all of Israel. That's an interesting point. Right after that, he said, many are going to come from the east and the west. They're going to sit down in the kingdom of heaven while you yourselves are going to be thrust out. Sometimes there are those who know better. They have the truth. They know how to live and they act worse. It, it really ought not be that way. We've got all the reasons to live right. We've got all the reasons and motivation to want to be pure and glorify our Lord. This was sad. In Corinth, there was a man who had his father's wife. And he says even Gentiles don't do that. Now, the reaction they had was not the reaction they should have had. Verse 2, you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. There's a time to laugh, and there's a time to weep. We looked at that in James. When there were people who needed to let their laughter be turned to mourning, they needed to be afflicted. This was one of those times. If there's sin in the camp... And a church is impure. That's not a time to be relaxed and, and acting like, hey, everything's great among us. We're at peace among ourselves when in reality we're, 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 we're lying to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves if we're telling ourselves that we're pure whenever we're really not. There ought to be times appropriately where we should be disturbed. Like one of the prophets in the Old Testament said on one occasion, Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? There were times when Jeremiah was weeping. No wonder he was called a weeping prophet. When he looked at the state of Israel and his country, and he saw that they were not right with God. There's times whenever a body is unhealthy. There's no bomb in Gilead. The whole head is sick, like in even in Isaiah, from head to toe. That's not a time to be acting like, hey, we're all great. We're, the, we're good. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. We say that a lot. People say, how are you? I'm fine. Deep down inside, we're dying, if that's sometimes. But Paul is saying, no, let's get to the reality here. What is the real situation? You should have been mourning. Not arrogant. Arrogance, puff, being puffed up, pride, hinders the proper attitude that causes us to see our sin and deal with it properly. And so he tells them the actions they need to take towards this man. Now what he's proceeding to say 
is something that the world is not going to understand, okay? The world is going to say, I don't like this section of Scripture because it doesn't sound very loving and very gentle at all. But you've got to understand there are some times where the uh, desperate situations call for desperate measures. He says, you should have mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. Is that what we really want? No, of course not. We never look forward to a time like that. But it is something that's, that is necessary at times. Verse 3 says, For verily I, I verily as absent in body, Paul's not there, present, but he says, but present in spirit having judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What Paul is now asking them to do is deal with this brother who is persistent in his sin. Now the ideal is that Christians don't sin. But in the event that Christians do sin, there's a proper way to care and love the person who is involved in that sin. Matthew 18 teaches us that if someone has wronged you specifically, you go to that brother privately. Don't tell everybody else. You don't need to involve anybody else. You don't need to go on the internet. You don't need to blab and you don't need to go tell anybody else in the church. You go to that brother. Keep it as contained as possible. And if the brother repents, problem is solved. You've gained your brother. That's the aim. But if he's stubborn and he doesn't repent, then you take one or two more. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, the, uh, the word would be established. Sometimes you, now you have to bring somebody else in. But again, it's limited. You're still not telling everybody. You're not telling the church yet. You're only involving one or two more, like a third party, somebody to hear both sides. Somebody that doesn't have a dog in that fight is not partial to either one, wants to hear both sides out. In order to try to say, here, let, let's, let's solve this issue this way. And if it's determined that this brother has indeed sinned, we're not talking about an opinion matter, but this is a sin matter. Again, the, the brother that sinned needs to repent. If he doesn't repent, then, then there's a, a next step, he says, to tell the church. And if he neglects to hear the church, let him be to thee as a heathen and a publican. Now the people in the first century understood what it meant to be a heathen and a publican. They didn't eat with publicans and heathens. They didn't keep company with publicans and heathens. And that's the meaning behind that in Matthew 18. And that's what he's now saying here when he says, Deliver such a one to Satan. This brother that had his father's wife, guess what? If, if he had repented of that, then forgive him. No need to do the rest of what he's saying. 
But if he's continuing to have his father's wife and he's not repenting, then what to do? Do you pretend like the brother's okay? Do you, do you call on him for prayer? Do you let him serve the Lord's Supper to you? Do you let him serve in the leadership of the church? Do you let him get up and teach? Do you let him teach a, a Bible class or preach a sermon? And bid him Godspeed in his evil deed? No, if you do that, then you're a partaker of his evil deed. To condone sin among us as brethren is to have fellowship with it. And we're not to do that. We're to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. Not to have fellowship with it. And what Paul is now encouraging the brethren here is they should have mourned. It's not a, this is not something you look forward to. It's not a, this is not a, a trigger-happy event where you're like, you're looking forward to the event when we can practice this. We, this is something that we don't ever want to do. And it's a last resort. Now the purpose behind this is to purify the church and to potentially save the person who's involved in the sin. That's the purpose. So lest somebody says, this doesn't seem very loving, the disciplinary measure that, the measure that he's telling them to take is with that design. Now sometimes there will be people who will say, this just doesn't work. Well, did it keep the church pure? then it worked. Now, your, your hope and your aim is that the person does return to the Lord. If that happens, yeah, you would say it worked. But even if the person who had his father's wife did not repent, but they were to purge him out, as he says to do, then they kept the lump and the church pure. And so you have to say... It worked. So don't say that with drawing from a wayward brother, it doesn't work. Sometimes brethren say those kinds of things. Don't say that because that's not true. Now, the way we practice it needs to be scriptural. The way we practice it needs to be by the Lord's order. And a lot of this requires our trust in God's design and God's plan. God doesn't need me to come along and say, you know what, God, I don't like this plan of purging out the leaven of the church, so I've got a better way. I don't think we should eat uh, th this part about not eating with him and not keeping company as we're going to look at. I've got a better plan. I think we should eat with him and we should keep company with him in hopes to bring him back. Well, that is a person who is in direct contradiction with God's plan and they are fighting against God's design. God is wise and so he knows how to handle the matter. And so we need to handle it his way. So let's look, look at what he says here to do. When should you do this? Well, he tells you in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. 
Well, you don't do this thing, whatever he's telling you to do, secretively. It's when you're gathered together. If that event, I hope that doesn't happen with any of us, but in the event, myself included, that if I was persistent in sin, this is what you would need to do. After you've already taken the steps to try to restore me, if I am so stubborn that I'm going to continue in my sin and I'm not going to change, then what you need to do is when you gather together, like an assembly like this today, you name my name and you state the instructions that Paul gives here, you deliver me over to Satan with the hope that I will return to the Lord, and from then on out, you don't keep company with me. You don't eat with me. In order to follow this pattern that he says here. And the hope is, is that I will miss your company. I will miss getting together with you and eating with you. And something will not seem right. That I will be ashamed of how I've been living and that I would humble myself and repent. That is the goal. But if I don't repent, you've still kept the church pure. You've done what you're supposed to do. What I do would then be up to me. And each of us as individuals need to practice that. Delivering to Satan is an interesting expression in verse 5. The man who is persistent in continuing to have his father's wife, he's already making a choice to follow Satan. So what you're doing is you're letting him make that choice. But you're, you're, there, that choice has consequences, and the consequences here is we do what we can do towards that brother, hoping that maybe he can be saved if he repents. But because they had not practiced this, he said, you're being arrogant. Do you realize how arrogant it is for man to say, I don't need this instruction. I don't need to practice this the way the Lord has told me to. That's arrogant. Maybe they were telling themselves, we're a loving church that we've got this guy and we're still all okay. I don't know what exactly made them arrogant. I know that there were other ways in which that when they were arrogant in verse 6 of chapter 1, they were puffed up against each other for one against another. They had pride in that issue. They had pride in speech in verse 19 of chapter 1 and the way they talked. In chapter 8, he's going to tell them they were puffed up in knowledge. In chapter 13, he's going to say, but if you had love, love doesn't puff up. Love is not arrogant. You know, that's the answer. This is biblical love. Somebody today may say, this just doesn't sound loving to no longer eat or keep company with a brother. That doesn't sound loving in our culture. I'm pretty sure that might not have felt loving in Corinth either. But, it's, but biblical love, true agape love, 
means I care about the best interests of a person. It's the same kind of biblical love that would discipline a child. While that's not pleasant, it's for the child's good. Same here with our brethren. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now you've got to understand the Old Testament foreshadowing that Paul is alluding to here. In Exodus chapter 11, we see that God inflicted the very last plague upon Egypt, and it was against the gods of Egypt. And that last plague, which was the death of the firstborn, the way to escape that death was by taking an unblemished lamb, taking it and sacrificing it, taking its blood and applying it to your house, getting in the house, staying in the house, and when the destroyer would come by and he would see the blood, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now Paul is saying, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And you've got to understand this. In the Old Testament uh, memorial, every year they observed this Passover to remember how they were delivered from Egyptian bondage. And what they would do is they would get the leaven out of their households. They were to remove the leaven and then... If anybody were to eat unleavened bread or leavened bread during that time, they were to be cut off from the people of Israel. Now Paul is saying, look, that was a foreshadowing of what we have now. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He's our Passover lamb. You remember he instituted the Lord's Supper at the time of the Passover when they were eating unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Jesus was unleavened. He had no sin. Leaven is yeast. And it only takes a little amount of yeast in a big lump of dough to make the whole lump rise. It has a spreading influence. And that's what he says in verse 6. A little leaven, leavens the whole lump. It only takes a little bit. When I worked at a restaurant, we'd put a big old huge lump of dough in a big mixer. It didn't take a whole lot of yeast for that amount of, of dough. Makes the, it, it, it spreads. That's what sin does. It has a spreading influence. And if you turn the blind eye and you don't do anything about a sin, it will spread. If you allow false doctrine in a church, it will spread. It's like a cancer. And it will get out of hand. And so it has to be taken care of. It needs to be purified. 
What Paul is now telling them, you're the lump. You're, you're like a lump of dough. And you've got this little yeast, this sin among you. And what you need to do is get the sin out or it's going to spread. And he's telling them since Christ our Passover, when Jesus was crucified, it allowed, he's the firstborn of God, but it allowed us to escape not the Egyptian bondage, but the bondage of sin. And it made the distinction between us and the world. And so now we need to keep that distinction and stay pure and keep the church pure. Jesus died for the church to keep it without wrinkle and without spot, Ephesians 5. And so that's why Paul says we need to keep the feast. He's again making a, an allusion to that Old Testament Passover feast to say what we need to keep today is not an actual physical meal, but it is a, a life and our worship. And the way that we live, it needs to not have this spreading influence of sin among us. He mentions malice and wickedness. Malice is ill will, wanting harm on someone. You know, the Bible, God, Paul by the Holy Spirit, calls sin what it is. Wickedness. He doesn't pull any punches about that. It's wicked. And so that's how we need to view it. Now, verse 9. Notice how he makes a distinction between those of the world that are acting this way and those in the church who are acting this way. You really need to see the distinction to understand the point he's making. Verse 9, I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or with or extortioners, or with idolaters. For them must, then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. With such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. You see the distinction? He's not saying you can't eat with a fornicator who is not in the church. Somebody might say, well, why did Jesus eat with sinners? And so sometimes people get confused on this. That's why Paul is, is, is making it clear. You've got to understand, I'm not applying this principle to those of the world. I thought you do keep company somewhat. Now, there's a, even a danger even with that. But you do try to reach out and help and influence people of the world. Okay? But he's making a distinction between them and those who should know better. Those of our company, those in the church, those who are called a brother. 
And it's interesting how he refers to them as that in verse 11. Notice the distinction between those outside and those who are called a brother or a so-called brother or named a brother, depending on which translation you're using. Why does he say it like that? Sometimes there will be those who will say, well, he wasn't really a true brother. He's not putting us in the heart-judging business. He's putting us in the action-judging business. If a person is claiming, someone's saying, well, I don't think they've ever been a true Christian. He's not, he's not telling us to even determine that. If they've been baptized and they're called a brother, if they're a part of this church, then they're the ones that we need to practice this with if they're persistent in, in a sin. Now, he names a list of sins. In the list of sins, sometimes people say, well, here's a brother who's practicing a sin, but it's not on this list. You need to understand, this is not a conclusive list. There's an additional sin mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 3, a brother who was not eaten, or brethren who were not eating. They were walking out of ranks. They were walking disorderly. This is not a conclusive list. This is just some examples that if somebody's practicing these things and they're called a brother and they're not repenting, then you need to practice this. Look at the actions that he, that he says. In verse 2, he says that he should be taken away. In verse 3, he says he should be judged. There is a time to judge. Sometimes people will say you should never judge. But those of us who know the Scripture a little better know that there are some occasions where judgment is necessary. This is the occasion. Not with those outside, let God deal with them. But those inside, they should have been judged. Verse 5, deliver them to Satan. Verse 7, purged out. Verse 11, not to keep company with. The ESV says not to associate with. Verse 11 says not to eat with. Verse 13, put away. The ESV says purge the evil person. The New American Standard says remove the wicked man. You know, I don't think those terms are that hard to understand. It's pretty simple to understand. It's hard to obey. And I know because my brother in the flesh, was called a brother in Christ. And I've had to practice this with my own brother in the flesh. And it's a hard command to obey because I want to spend time with him. I want to eat with him. I want to keep company with him. I miss that. I wish he would stop being stubborn and I wish he would repent and I wish he would obey and then I could have that restored. But he's, he knows the truth. He was raised knowing the truth. But he's refusing. If my brother were to repent, I think I would be the first to congratulate and welcome him in. There would be tears of joy, not only with the angels of heaven, but in me. And I would be as happy as could be. But until then, I'm called upon to practice this thing. Sometimes there are those who say, well, family are exempt. I don't believe that's true. 
I believe those who have had the, the company and association with this person who knows the truth, it is the most important. It's imperative that everybody cooperate. I hope my children never leave the faith. But my children already know that if they were to do something like this and they continued and persisted, I would not eat with them. I would not keep company with them. And I would beg you to cooperate and not keep company and eat with them either. I'm speaking as one is saying it's not fair that I'd refrain from eating and keeping company with my own physical brother while the rest of my family ignores these passages that they know are clear there. They're not cooperating with the word of Scripture and thereby they are wrecking the plan and they're hindering it. Some in the family will say, oh, but I'm, I need to keep company with him in order to win him back. And do you know they've been doing that for over 20 years? And it has not worked yet. And he's still unfaithful. Their plan has not worked, but yet they think their plan is better than God's. Am, am I emotional about the subject? I am. Because I believe my brother's soul is at stake. And I believe the purity of Christians are at stake. I'm not jealous. The Lord knows my heart. I just want my brother to be faithful and go to heaven. That's all I want. And I just want to be pleasing to the Lord that if my brother is not faithful, that I want to be found faithful regardless. And so if that time ever comes, I hope that we would practice this the way that we're supposed to. Again, it's not a fun uh, command to obey, but it is necessary. Purging out the leaven. If you're a Christian, stay faithful. Don't, 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 don't grow so stubborn in your will that you, if, if, if we ever need to come and talk to you, be moldable, be humble. Be willing to hear a rebuke. Be of the type of mindset that you're willing to hear, that you love the truth and you appreciate those who love your soul and risk hurting your feelings in order to try to win you back to the Lord. Be teachable. Stay faithful. Yesterday was an amazing day. My wife and I, we were, we were talking how wonderful yesterday was to us to be together like we were. What an amazing day. That, to see Michaela uh, react the way she did when her parents came and, 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 and to have everybody there laughing and singing and together. That's, that's a taste of heaven is what that is. We need to be getting together and enjoying each other's company because we're going to be together in heaven, Lord willing. But we need to preserve those times. And we need to do that. That if this ever needs to be practice among us, that something would be missed. And that this would be effective. I'm telling you, that what we did yesterday would be one of the first things that I would miss. Something wouldn't seem right come Sunday. Something wouldn't seem right the rest of the week of not getting to see you. I would miss you. And that's why this works. If you're not a Christian, we want you to come into the faith and be faithful. 
Jesus has been sacrificed for you. Don't you want your sins to be passed over? Then apply the blood. Be baptized in his death. And you can be forgiven and escape the worst bondage. While we stand, while we sing.